Oh, okay, welcome back to Hellspan. This is part three of Life Force by Tony Robbins. In this episode, I mainly focus on diabetes and obesity as well as Alzheimer's. There's other non-health related topics in this section like power of decisions and power of mindset, but because this is a health related podcast, I'm mainly going to be focusing on the diabetes and Alzheimer's. So to begin with the diabetes, Tony Robbins states that nearly 40% of world's adults are now overweight and more than 13% are obese. And if that's not bad enough, more than 340 million children and adolescents aged 5 to 19 are obese or overweight. In 2018, adult obesity in the U.S. surpassed 42%, up from 30% since 2000. About 74% of Americans aged 20 and older are now either overweight or, 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 or obese. And this, again, is according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. We can all think back to the COVID-19 pandemic, and we know the number one risk factor for dying from COVID was age. But the number two thing, the the second biggest risk factor, was obesity. Studies have shown that 78% of those who died from COVID were either overweight or obese. So again, number one is age, number two is obesity. And we're seeing that the majority of people that die from COVID are going to be the overweight and the obese. It's an actual huge risk factor. Now, the Harvard T.H. Chan School also cites studies showing that obesity raises the risk of multiple diseases like ischemic stroke by 64%, asthma by 50%, and Alzheimer's disease by 42%. And I'm going to be getting to Alzheimer's later in in this episode. And finally, obesity has direct associations with many types of cancers, including breast, uterus, gallbladder, colon, esophagus, pancreas, liver, thyroid, and kidney, just to name a few. The good news is both diabetes and obesity are preventable and even reversible, which I will get to later. But specifically, losing weight actually rejuvenates critical insulin-producing cells in the pancreas known as beta cells. And again, I'm going to get into this data a little bit later. Now, Scott Cahan, who is the director of the National Center for Weight and Wellness, states that it's really our food environment that is impacting us the most. In America, the unhealthiest foods are the tastiest foods. They are the cheapest foods, the largest proportion foods, the most available foods, and the most fun foods. So is our challenge with obesity our genes or a failure of willpower? Or is it exercise or what is it? And again, Scott Cahan is saying that this is really our food environment that we're exposed to as well as just high amounts of high fructose corn syrup and other Add, you know, added sugars and added sweeteners. And a tiny change in calories over time will actually transform your energy, vitality, and health. So during, two year, during, during a two-year investigation published in the Lancet Journal, people who reduced their calorie intake by an average of 12%, which is just 300 calories, showed striking improvements in cardiometabolic health and all other markers as well. So that's really less than the number of calories in a bagel or a Starbucks scone or a power bar. Avoiding just 300 calories per day allowed individuals to lose weight and body fat. Their cholesterol levels and triglycerides improved, their blood pressure fell, and they had better blood sugar control and less inflammation. And he also adds here that study subjects who succeeded in cutting 300 calories a day reported improvements in various measures of quality of life like better energy, better sleep, and better mood. In other words, this minor shift in lifestyle delivers huge gains 
in terms of life force. The landmark NIH study known as the Diabetes Prevention Program found that overweight adults with impaired glucose tolerance who lost just 5-7% to of their body weight, which is about 10-14 to pounds in a 200-pound person, and logged about 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise like brisk walking, reduced their risk of developing type 2 diabetes by 58%. So we're seeing just, you really need this small increment of calorie reduction and small increment of weight loss to actually see these profound benefits in your metabolic health and also your lifestyle health as well. And as I mentioned before, losing weight can actually regenerate the islet cells in your pancreas. In a nutshell, losing a substantial amount of weight in a relatively short period of time can actually reverse type 2 diabetes. People with type 2 diabetes now have a choice rather than a life sentence. Again, this is because the restoration of beta cells, those are the insulin-producing cells in your pancreas. For the longest time, everyone assumed that once beta cells were damaged due to obesity, they were done. But Dr. Taylor, another researcher, and his colleagues have shown that the beta cells are still there. They're just unable to perform their function because of the excess of fat in the liver and pancreas. So if you listen back to my, my Diabetes Code by Jason Fung, this is the exact hypothesis, the exact mechanism that he was trying to explain in his book. It's really this fat accumulation around the liver, which then that fat has to go somewhere else, so it goes to the pancreas. And because there's so much fat in the pancreas, the islet cells in the pancreas are not able to actually secrete insulin and do its other functions. Then comes the insulin resistance and the ultimately diabetes. So if we just reduce this visceral adiposity, lose the weight, we can actually regenerate the islet cells in our pancreas. So how much weight did people need to lose to send their type 2 diabetes in remission? This minimum magic number was about 22 pounds. That's all they had to lose was 22 pounds. If people lose 22 pounds and keep it off for two years, there's a two-thirds chance they'll escape from type 2 diabetes. So the two magic numbers to remember are 300 calories a day and 22 pounds. These are the numbers that you need to shoot for if you're losing to reverse and you know, as well as prevent you know, type 2 diabetes. So keep those numbers in mind. And some solutions. So a practical game plan to crush diabetes and obesity or diabetes. Number one solution is radically reduce your intake of sugar. I kind of hearken to Robert Lustig and his TED Talk. He has this great TED Talk about sugar and how sugar is poison. So I highly recommend looking up Dr. Lustig's TED Talk, uh, TEDx Talk on YouTube if you can. And the second shift is to, the second solution is to shift your diet to high quality foods. And this applies to both your carbohydrates and fats. So what are the fats I'm talking about? These are the ones I've mentioned before. It's the big four. Olive oil, avocados, nuts, and fatty fish. Your fats should be primarily made up of those four things. Food rich in fat will help you feel satiated and they won't trigger the insulin high insulin release or spike your insulin basically like most other kind of processed carbohydrates do. So focus on these high quality foods both in your carbohydrates and fat. And protein, for that matter, you should focus on a lot. The, the quality of your protein, make sure it's, if it's like some sort of meat product, it is grass-fed, grass-finished, just these high-quality meats, low, you know, low in the actual fat. So something to think about as well. Now, the next solution he talks about is 
semaglutide. I mentioned this in the last episode when I was talking about the different peptides that are being, you know, produced now in the market, like uh, semaglutide and GSKCU and semorolin, these other peptides that are, you know, BPC-157, all these different peptides that are now exploding in the market. And when it comes to diabetes and obesity, there's none other stronger than semaglutide. Now, I mentioned this study last episode, but I wanted to reiterate the study because it was so landmark. So there was this double-blind placebo-controlled trial with 1,961 adults whose BMI were either 30 or greater. It was a 68-week trial where these people were taking 2.4 milligrams of semaglutide once once a week. And overall, they saw a 15% reduction in their body weight. So how is semaglutide actually working? Semaglutide is this glucagon-like peptide agonist. So this endogenously secreted molecule in your body that is decreasing gastric emptying and peristalsis, which creates a satiating feeling. Therefore, you're going to eat less and lose weight. Semaglutide can also increase beta cell mass and insulin secretion. So we're actually increasing the density of our beta cells and our insulin insulin producing cells. Semaglutide has also been shown to have improved cardio functioning as well, like improved endothelial function, increase in the atrial natriuretic peptide, decreasing inflammation, and really the list goes on in, in terms of brain health and even gut health as well. So semaglutide is a very, is a, it, the other name goes by Ozempic. So the brand name is Ozempic, but semaglutide is the name of the GLP agonist that is producing all these big effects. And he has this anecdotal story about this man named Huang, who after just a short week of a short amount of time on this semaglutide, he actually dropped 65 pounds and he dropped his A1C down and showed huge improvements in the biological markers. So semaglutide, if you are either diabetic, obese, talk to your doctor about potentially using semaglutide, otherwise known as Ozempic. So that's really diabetes and obesity in a nutshell. I highly recommend you check out my Diabetes Code by Jason Fung, where I go into a lot more detail about the pathophysiology and other solutions in detail. But for now, I'm going to move on to Alzheimer's. So Alzheimer's, one of the four leading killers in the U.S., cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and cardiovascular disease are the top four. Currently, there are 6 million people in the U.S. with Alzheimer's. 50 million people worldwide are afflicted by Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia as well. The good news is there is tremendous reason to be optimistic. So I'll be explaining these different types of solutions that we're having currently that are being investigated in treating Alzheimer's. So Dr. Rudy Tanzi, who is the director of the Genetics and Aging Research Unit at Mass General Hospital, and Vice Chair of Neurology and Co-Director of the McCants Center for Brain Health, showed that he well, he actually discovered the beta amyloid gene, which is one of the Alzheimer's genes. And he also played a role in discovering other genes related to Alzheimer's as well. So Dr. Rudy Tanzi was working in this as a technician in this other person's lab named Dr. James Guselli. Gusella, and... Um, Dr. Gusella had a project for him. He wanted Dr. Rudy to map the 21st chromosome 
which is implicated in Down syndrome. Rudy soon realized that people with Down syndrome had, had a huge propensity for Alzheimer's. He told Gusella that he was going after the Alzheimer's disease gene beta amyloid. So here's the connection here. Down syndrome or trisomy 21 is there's three chromosomes in on the there's three tw- 21st chromosome so trisomy 21 and basically there's more beta amyloid and for that reason people with down syndrome are way more likely to develop alzheimer's because of there's three copies of the chromosome instead of two like everyone else and he saw that he, th- he thought that was this was very interesting and in graduate school at Harvard, again, Dr. Rudy also found and cloned the amyloid precursor protein gene, so APP gene. And I'm going to explain how this all ties in together. He also co-discovered the first two early onset familial Alzheimer's genes, PSEN1 and PSEN2. So how do these... I threw out a lot of acronyms, amyloid precursor protein... APP, beta amyloid, PSEN, how do these all tie together? Well, for the last 20 years, Rudy has been working on a drug called gamma secretase modulators. Gamma secretases contain regions, you know, secretase, it's an enzyme, and they contain regions, this enzyme contains regions called presinillins, which are the catalytic, catalytic component of gamma secretases. These presinillins cleave amyloid precursor proteins and generate peptides of variable length, the most typical being amyloid beta-39 and amyloid beta-42. So amyloid precursor proteins are the precursor to amyloid betas, 39 and 42, and 42 is the one implicated in Alzheimer's. So we're working on gamma secretase modulators to reduce the actual cleaving of the amyloid precursor proteins, thereby decreasing the amount of amyloid beta production in the brain. Now, there's different etiologies of Alzheimer's, and there's a lot of debate about what's actually causing Alzheimer's. Is it the vascular inflammation? It is, is it the insulin resistance? Is it the reduced amount of choline in the brain? Is it the beta amyloid? Is it the hyperphosphorylated tau? There's still a lot of debate, but the leading theory is the accumulation of hyperphosphorylated tau and amyloid beta in the brain. By creating gamma secretase modulators, we're decreasing the amount of beta amyloid in the brain, specifically amyloid beta 42. And we're seeing some marked improvement in these people who are using these drugs. There's also another tool and it is via taming the microglia. So in 2019, one of Tansy's colleagues reported the strange case of a woman from Medellin, Colombia. She had a genetic mutation that was known to be have high amounts of like amyloid in the brain, just genetically. Yet this woman ended up being dementia-free. So how was it possible? What was her secret? It was because she had the ApoE3, which stopped tau from spreading through the brain. So similarly... Tansy discovered that a mutant form of the gene CD33 can actually protect people from Alzheimer's. It stops the brain's kind of immune cells, which is the microglia, from growing from going rogue. So remember, one of the ideas is that Alzheimer's is this vascular inflammation. There's a sort of inflammation pattern going on. So microglia are the normally 
help clear out these cells in the brain, but oftentimes they can go haywire and produce a lot of this neuroinflammation. So the CD33 gene is actually inhibiting microglia from going haywire and decreasing the amount of plaques and tangles. Uh, So that's another idea about taming these microglia and potentially reducing the chances of getting Alzheimer's. Now there's another tool called Arathusta, which clears toxins from the brain. And Arathusta is this new experimental technology to restore cerebrospinal fluid flow and clear toxins from the brain. So Arathusta is named after this nymph in Greek mythology who held who fled a lustful river god by turning into an underground stream. And Arathusta is intended to be a safe and simple shunt that can be implanted through the nose in a twilight anesthesia procedure that will create a hidden stream that allows people to escape Alzheimer's even if they have mild cognitive impairment. So this all sounds very confusing with the CSF and clearing of toxins. I recommend you listening to Dr. Matthew Walker's podcast that I did, uh, Why We Sleep. There I go into detail about the glymphatic system and how during the nighttime we get increased glymphatic movement and clearing of the amyloid and clearing of the tau. This machine technology, Arathusta, is essentially trying to do the same thing, where we're increasing the CSF flow and the clearing of toxins from the brain. So if you want more detail, go ahead and listen to Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. Another tool is the blood plasma treatments. Therapeutic plasma exchange swaps a person's blood plasma, which is the yellowish liquid that transports proteins and nutrients. And in animal studies, when plasma from young, healthy mice was infused into mice bred to have Alzheimer's, the ailing mice experienced an improvement in cognition. And when 322 patients with Alzheimer's got multiple infusions of enriched plasma, their cognitive decline slowed down. So that is the other potential treatment of Alzheimer's is this blood plasma treatment. Another tool is this vaccinity. So is it possible we can actually create a vaccine to treat Alzheimer's? So when Time Magazine named Mei Mei Hung, Mei Mei Hu, to its 2019 100 Next list, it gave her very high appraisal. She started this company called Vaccinity. And Vaccinity is used to really help create this Alzheimer's vaccine. And the the name is UB311. And it was about to enter a large-scale efficacy trial when Tony Robbins was writing this book. So phase two, phase three trial. After demonstrating it was safe and effective at harnessing the body's immune system to manufacture antibodies that target and remove those ill-formed amyloid proteins. So remember the leading theory, accumulation of amyloid, beta, and hyperphosphorylated tau. We're actually creating a vaccine that is harnessing our own immune system to make antibodies against the beta amyloid and get rid of it. UB311, again the name of this Alzheimer's vaccine, was seen to increase brain connectivity and reduce amyloid deposits in all brain in all eight brain regions tested. Moreover, the safety profile appears to be excellent with no cases of the drug no cases of the drug induced swelling that has been seen in with other monoclonal antibodies that have been developed previous. So again, this vaccine created by Mei Mei Hu and her company Vaccinity. 
Another tool potentially is the power of mushrooms. So Dr. Paul Stamets, one of the, I probably butchered that name, but one of the world's foremost mycology experts and pioneers, launched a company called Michael Media Life Sciences. And he has this blend of neural regeneration in- ingredients, including lion's mane, psilocybin, and niacin. So this stack of three molecules, Stamets, kind of the one that he kind of promotes, may have diverse indications, including for Alzheimer's and dementia, neuroinflammation, Parkinson's, traumatic brain injury, depression, anxiety, pain, and addiction. So beginning with lion's mane, lion's mane has been known for a long time to to boost BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. This was discovered by a Japanese biochemist, Dr. Hirokazu Kawagishi. In 1993, he realized it induced the synthesis of this nerve growth factor. In terms of psilocybin, psilocybin, in addition to its statistically significant reduction in anxiety and depression, microdosing it has been shown to restore fine motor ability in patients with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and mild cognitive impairment. So if you want something more natural, you can look into lion's mane, possibly psilocybin, and niacin as well. And moving forward, just a lot. There, he gives many tips here, and the other ones are very obvious, like having a clean diet and exercise and using saunas and stuff. Um, there's another one, like mental fitness and video games for brain health. So doing things like learning a new language or practicing piano seems to confer real benefits. And there's other like video games that are being designed by neuroscientists to help people against fighting Alzheimer's. So the list kind of goes on and on, but I just wanted to highlight those big tools to potentially, you know, reverse Alzheimer's or stop the onset of Alzheimer's. Again, this is all happening right now, right in front of us. All these technologies are being invented. So at the end of the day, it's very, you should, you should feel hopeful that some, sometime in the near future, we can develop these things that are, are going to be helping those who are inflicted. Again, 50 million worldwide, six or seven million in the U.S. So that's the end of uh, this section. That's the end of this book. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Again, this book contains such a wide array of information. I can only cover so much. And again, he covers other non-health related stuff. If you want to go ahead and buy this book. But if anything, I hope you enjoy this podcast. I hope you tune in next time for the next book I cover. And again, thank you for listening.